Just good to see you all, and uh, God is good. Uh, our, our book is taken from James chapter 1, verse 22 to 26. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 26. Verse 22. But be ye doer of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. For if any be a hearers of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But who so look into the perfect law of liberty, and continue daring, he being not a great forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This, is, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. Verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious and brittle not his tongue, but deceive his own heart, this man's religious is vain. I'd like to invite you to come to the book of James this morning, the book of James, and we'll be spending, Lord willing, the next 10 weeks in this epistle to the book, uh, the book of James, the letter that the, uh, our brother James wrote. And I will say as we start off that this most often is the most misunderstood book in the New Testament. It is sometimes confusing, sometimes misunderstood, but I want to remind you as we get started that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, entire, and ready and acceptable for all good works. And all Scripture works together with other Scripture. Many times, somebody might take a verse, read it, try to apply it outside of its context, and it ends up messing people up. One phrase that comes out of the book of James that has caused many problems for a lot of people is the phrase, faith without works is dead. James wrote it, and we'll see today that there was a reason that he wrote it. Um, but if we're not careful, we'll end up off track, poor theology, poor doctrine, trying to work our way into salvation. I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, James isn't talking about salvation at all in his book. In fact, he's assuming that his readers are believers. I'll show that to you as we come through the passage. There is one statement that he makes over and over throughout his epistle, and it's one that I'll say will be our theme for today. It's this, test your faith. Test your faith. You don't want to spend the rest of your life just assuming, I prayed a prayer, or somebody showed me from the Bible and I actually wept, I dropped tears, and I prayed a prayer, and that's what's going to get me into heaven. Because friend, your faith, your heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Test your faith. There are some ways that you can look at your life and see, 
do I have evidence of repentance? Is there evidence that I'm actually saved? And he's going to give us ten of them through the book. And we'll spend ten weeks walking through those questions. Test your faith. Many people stumble on that phrase, faith without works is dead, and it causes hiccups. And I want to just go ahead and share with you and remind you that all of the rest of the New Testament points us to the fact that the Lord Jesus went to the cross and took your sin. And there's nothing that you can do to add to it. In fact, there is a denomination, and I'm going to be kind enough to not say which denomination is, but it won't take much for you to figure out which one it is. There is a denomination that says very loudly, you must follow the law in order to be right with God. They would say things like there's a certain day of the week that you're supposed to worship on, there's certain foods that you should abstain from, and yet the Apostle Paul is very clear when he says things like, I saw a look, took a look at the law and I tried to follow the law, but it slew me. He made another statement in the book of Galatians. The law has a purpose, and the purpose of the law is that it would be a schoolmaster. It would point us to the fact that you're a sinful person, unable to fulfill all of God's requirements, but that's the good news because God sent Jesus to fulfill all of the requirements of the law on your behalf so that He will take your sin and give you His righteousness. Oh friend, the gospel is a massive idea. You'll never be able to continue in all of the law. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 hits this very point. It says this, Galatians 3 and verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Hear him say that clearly. If you're going to try to follow the law, you're placing yourself under a curse. Why? Why is it a curse? For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Don't think of Ten Commandments. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Things like put a handrail around your rooftop. I bet if we did a poll this morning, I think we would find that very few of us are following that law. Don't ever, don't ever eat an egg with the chicken. That's in the law. Don't eat the egg and the chicken in the same meal. And I bet you if you were to examine your meal this last week, you probably ended up having egg and chicken in the same meal. You broke the law. There's 613 of them. You can't get away from it. And here's the point of Galatians 3.10. If you don't continue in every single one of those laws, you've placed yourself under a curse and there's no way out of it. Cursed is he who does not continue. And you know what continue means, right? Continue means you do it and you do it and you do it and you do it. And the moment you step out, you're cursed. I wonder how many times do you have to pass the bacon before God finally says he's righteous? You know what the law says? Your entire life passed the bacon. I'm sorry for you. I love my bacon. And Paul actually says in Romans chapter 14, all meat is available to you, believer. Aren't you thankful that Jesus went to the cross and took everything that you needed in order for you to be right with God? Because you'll never live up to the law. He goes on with Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree 
Jesus went to the cross and he became a curse for you and I. As it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Not through following the law, but through Jesus Christ. We place our trust in him and we, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. God has made it possible for you and I, brothers and sisters, God has made it possible for us to be made right with Him by simply trusting in the Lord Jesus. You see, what the law does is it points us to the fact that you'll never live up to God's righteous standard. You'll never make it. It's impossible. But God sent the Lord Jesus to take our sin upon the cross. He became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Being in Christ is life-changing. So salvation, however, should be accompanied with good works. James writes this epistle because he knows that on one side of, if we were to use a pendulum swing, on one side of the pendulum swing, we have those who say you must abide by the law in order to be saved. And then if you swing that pendulum all the way over to the other side and get wrong doctrine on the other side, that wrong doctrine says, well, it doesn't matter how you live and you can live like the devil. In fact, Paul spoke spoke of this, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Strongest way ever to say no in the Greek language. Don't you even think about it. No, don't live over here in this one. Don't say Christ died for my sins, so I'll just live in sin. No, don't go there. And James says the very same thing. James says, it's not on that side, and it's also not on this side. Instead, your life will be different because you're a believer. And I might put these two against themselves because we've spent so much time in the book of Romans. Paul is very clear in the book of Romans what is salvation. He's so clear about it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God unto sanctification. Your life will be changed. And James sits over here on the other side and he says, and let me show you how. He's going to give us ten of them. I'll walk through them later on in the sermon. But let's have a look here this morning as James starts off his book. I will take our text for today from the first verse, only one verse for today. And we'll walk through. If you like to have an outline at the beginning, I'll go ahead and tell you. Our outline is threefold. The author, the audience, and the occasion. Why is he writing? So let's see. James chapter 1 and verse number 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And so I'd like to walk through these three things, the author, the audience, and then the occasion, why is he writing. And so let's have a look at the, at the author. So James, who is this guy? Who is this James? In fact, he doesn't say anything about himself in the entire book. He's not personal in any way. And so there's a number of Jameses in the Bible that it might be, and so I'll just kind of give some options. One would be James, the son of Alphaeus. You might remember that name in the list of the disciples. One of them was James, the son of Alphaeus. He's only listed a couple of times, and almost every time he's listed, named in the list of disciples. And there's very little things that we know about James, the son of Alphaeus. In fact, after Christ rose from the dead, he's never named again in the, in the New Testament. But don't feel bad about that because there's other ones in that list as well. Ones like Bartholomew and Thomas, Did, uh, sorry, Thomas Didy, Didymus. And you have 
Judas, not Iscariot. We have these other names of disciples that we don't really know anything about. And so I would, I would venture to say that this James is not James the son of Alphaeus. You also have the, uh, another James that, that's very popular. In fact, when Jesus did his ministry, he had his inner circle. You had Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That inner circle that spent time with Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, this James would be James and John, brothers, the sons of Zebedee. Another name, Jesus called them, called them the sons of thunder. And I don't know if you remember this story and why that was. Jesus had sent the disciples ahead into Samaria. Go and tell them that I'm coming. And they went into a town, and it was one town in Samaria that refused to let Jesus come to their town. And James and John turned to Jesus and they say, how about we just let fire come down from heaven on that town? Jesus goes, you guys are the sons of thunder. We're living in grace here, boys. I can just imagine what's going on in their head. Elijah did miracles. Jesus did miracles. Elijah called down fire. Jesus, this is our chance. Let's get those Samaritans. I, I, I don't know. That James, however, ends up being martyred in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, he gets martyred. And this James continues on, and we see him in Acts 15. So this can't be James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee. It's not that James. However, this James is a James, the James that wrote this book, is a James that we don't talk about very often. He really doesn't make much of a splash in the Gospels, and it's kind of after the Gospels that you see him, and we kind of have to put together several pieces to see his story. And so I've, I've got some verses that I'll put up on the board to help us with this. I'll go ahead and tell you who he is. This James is the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus. Now that's going to hold some significance for us, and I know that some of you are going to be scratching your head this morning because you're thinking, wait a second, how did Jesus have a brother? And that idea comes from another denomination. I'll be kind this morning and not say which one, but there is a denomination that, said, that says that Mary was perpetually a virgin and never had other children. The problem with that is the Bible says the exact opposite. I'll show it to you in just a minute. With us saying that Mary had other children, we do not in any way take away from who she was. She was highly favored among women. She was well esteemed. We don't worship her, but we can set her apart and say God saw fit to use her in a mighty way. And if we're not careful, if we end up placing her on a pedestal and saying she was a perpetual virgin, what we end up doing is we end up placing celibacy on a plane where it was not supposed to be. You see, Hebrews 13, 4 is very clear. Marriage is honorable. The bed undefiled. And so for Mary to be married and have children is a holy thing in itself. And so there's nothing that takes away from who she was by the fact that she was married and had more children. And so let me share this with you. This comes out of Mark chapter 6 and verse number 3. As I come in to read it, I just want to remind you, Jesus was in the midst of his uh, earthly ministry, and he came into Nazareth, having already done miracles other places. Remember, he grew up in Nazareth. He comes back into Nazareth, and the people rejected him. So we know this guy. 
And here's one of the things that they said. This is Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? The people in Nazareth said, we know this guy. Jesus, we know who he is. We've seen his carpentry works. I bought a chair from him. I know Jesus, and I know who his mom is, and I know who his brothers are. You can just imagine, you grew up in a village, and you know who it is in the village that was the good guys, and who it was that was the bad guys, and you know what kind of person this one is, and you know who his brothers and who his parents are, and his aunties and his uncles. You could do the family tree for the whole village. Nazareth the same way. It's a small town, everybody knows everybody, Jesus comes back after having done ministry, and they go, we know you. You were a carpenter, you're the son of Mary, you got four brothers, and you have some sisters. And it's of significance that James is a brother. I I submit, perhaps, James is the oldest of those siblings, it's not hard for us to understand this. Mary was uh, married to Joseph. Together, while Jesus was a baby, they fled to Egypt. They came back from Egypt to Nazareth. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And here we find out she has four boys and some girls. Jesus grew up within that setting in Nazareth. This is not hard for us to understand. As I look now, I see just because of the listing of names, perhaps James is the oldest. Now remember, not full-blooded brother, Christ was born when the Father, through the Holy Spirit, came upon Mary. Joseph and Mary are married for who knows how much longer. I would imagine probably Joseph passed away before Jesus is fully born, uh, fully grown. And it leaves behind these brothers. I would think that if I grew up around Jesus, I would hope that I was holy enough to pay attention to how holy he was. I don't know if you've noticed this. Siblings have a hard time recognizing the genius in each other. And the same was the case in the household of Jesus. By the time we come into John chapter 7, we find out that they did not believe on Jesus. This is his siblings. Uh, This is John chapter 7 and verse 5 says, Neither did his brethren believe in him. I don't know why. We don't know why they didn't believe in him. I could just imagine, however, I know that Jesus was perfect and sinless all through his entire life. I have to admit, as a sibling, that would be hard to miss. I wonder if it wasn't something like this. I wonder if James and Judas and Joseph, I wonder if they grew up with things like something went wrong in the house and mom always blamed them. Why not you know like suspect him Jesus too, ya? All got a time use a finger point on me. Come on, Jesus, and also one him. <laughs> but they must have known he's different. As they grew and they watch, as he goes into ministry, he begins to do miracles, and still they don't believe in him. They don't trust in him. They, they reject him, and they push back against him. And then the, something happened in their life that changed everything. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross. 
And when he died on the cross, I have no doubt that James and Joseph and Judas and the sisters watched as Mary wept over her son. Scripture's words, book of Luke, a sword pierced her soul. I can only imagine as she wept over. I think James and Joseph and Judas and the sisters had no problem coming around mom during that time. Yeah, we didn't get along with Jesus. And yeah, he was always a goody two-shoes. And yeah, he was perfect in all of his ways. But there really was something different. Isn't it amazing how in family tragedy we have a tendency to look at things differently? And then Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I want you to see what happens in 1 Corinthians 15. I've got it on the board here. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7. Paul writes the story of Jesus' resurrection. Watch closely for what he says. For I delivered unto you, first of all, all that, that I, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained unto this present, but some were fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, and then all the apostles. You know what Jesus did when he rose from the dead? Talked to the disciples. He showed himself to the five hundred at one time. And he went and found James. James, you watched me die. You held mom. I've been saying it for years. I'm the son of God. This doesn't happen. James, pay attention. He was seen of James. Can I just pause there for just a moment, friend? For 30 years, James rejected Jesus his own brother. Nobody gets closer to Jesus than his brother. And for 30 years, he, if you've got lost family members, friend, don't give up. Keep being a good testimony. There may come a moment, there may come a tragic moment, there may come a moment when they start looking, i got to find answers somewhere else than where I've been turning. And in a moment of tragedy, God just might use your testimony in their life. And I want you to see what happens in the next few weeks in James's life. Because Jesus appears to James, and he was on the earth after his resurrection for 40 days, and then he ascended back up to heaven. And on the 50th day, the day of Pentecost, the disciples were gathered in an upper room in Acts chapter 2. So this is only 50 days from death until the day of Pentecost, and there in the upper room. Now, I want you to see what is said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brethren. Guess who's in the 120? James. Friend, I'm telling you, this guy's life was changed when he saw a resurrected Christ. 
And God begins to do a work in James's life. In fact, as you look through the book of Acts and you watch, remember I told you, Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, dies. First martyr. Worth noting, James is the first martyr, the brother of John. He's the first of the disciples to die. John, the other brother, is the last of the... They bookended him. The one is the first, the other one's the last. And now we've got another James, the brother of Jesus, that's beginning to rise in prominence within the church so that by the time you come to Acts chapter 15, there's a major church issue as they sit. Paul, how many times I've mentioned this, Paul comes back from his first missionary journey, brings Titus with him. Titus is a Gentile. He's exhibit A. God saves the Gentiles and he brings Titus in before the church filled with Jews. And Peter says, yeah, I saw Cornelius got saved too. I saw Gentiles get saved. And Acts chapter 15 says it like this. And when they held their peace, James stood and spoke. And he said, listen, church, this is of God and we'll never be able to put a stop to this. God saves Gentiles. You realize what happened? It had been about 15 years that he's been saved. But James has risen within the church leadership, the brother of Jesus. I have no doubt in my mind that when Jesus rose from the dead and went and visited James, it's because he knew, I got a plan for this one. I got a plan. This one's going to be leading the church in my absence. Oh, Peter's going to do a great job. But as James rises, Peter slips into a second position. Here's Paul's words of, uh, about James in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19. I'll start with verse 18. Galatians 1 and verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I bowed with him for 15 days. But of the other apostles saw I none, save I saw James, the Lord's brother. It's been 15 years since Christ went back up to heaven, and now Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and who does he name? I went and saw Peter, and I went and saw James, the Lord's brother. And then you come into Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19, and he names James as one of the leaders of the church. This is Galatians 2 and verse 9. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, that gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Do you see this now? James is leading the church. I, I will say this. Paul does a very good job of pointing a finger at James. And we'll talk about this later. He points a finger at James and he says, be careful about taking the way that James lives and making it the basis of your salvation. Be careful. And there were a lot of people, in fact, Galatians chapter 2 talks about this, there were a lot of people that were of the, and here's the phrase, of the company of James. In other words, they followed James, but what they did was they took this teaching from the book of James and applied it and said, you have to get saved this way. And that's not James's point at all. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You see, James is the author of this book. As he writes this book, he's telling us some very important things. There's a way you should be living. It should be different. And so we see here that James was the brother of Jesus. And then also, I want you to notice, you can see this in chapter 1 and verse 1, that James was a humble servant. He was a humble servant. Look at James chapter 1 and verse 1. I want you to see the wording that's there. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant 
of God. The, the, the word that's there can also be translated in other places in the New Testament as a slave. I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but I wonder how many of us would be willing to put our hand up and say, I, I'm happy to be a slave to my brother. I think the answer would be, no God death. I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he didn't just say the servant of Jesus. Now, could you imagine the place of prominence for the church if he wrote James, the brother of Jesus, to the 12 tribes that are... Could you just imagine if he wrote it that way? I mean, that places him in a position of authority. This is Jesus' brother. Hear ye him. But he doesn't say that. Instead, it's James, the servant of God, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, worth mentioning, no man can serve two masters, but if those two masters are the exact same one, I and my Father are one, John chapter 10, Jesus and the Father, so I'm a servant to God the Father, I'm a servant to the Lord Jesus. He says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave. He's obviously humble here. And then also, I'm going to make this statement, he was just, he was righteous. One last thing I want you to see about this. His life, he's often called James the Just. You might have heard that name. Or James the Righteous. Had everything to do with the way he lived. Now I mentioned that there were some people that followed James and took up his lifestyle and caused problems for the church. And that's what he writes about in Galatians chapter 2. What they've done is they've taken James's lifestyle and they've said, this is the way that you are supposed to be in order to be right. And James goes, no, wait, it's the other way around. I am right with God and therefore the way that I live changes. I think the best example of this would be in Acts chapter 15. When Paul brings Titus, the church listens, they agree, God saves Gentiles, James writes a letter to the Gentile churches. That letter is recorded in Acts 15. And the letter that he writes essentially says something like, Gentiles, remember that as you reach Jews, there's a certain way that Jews live. And if you are blatantly pushing against that, they'll stop listening to you. There's certain things they eat and certain things they don't eat. And if you just walk in and offer them a pork sandwich, they're going to be disgusted at you, and they will not listen to the gospel. In other words, your lifestyle can get in the way of the gospel. The Jews don't drink blood. You Gentiles, you like to drink blood. So don't do that. It doesn't mean if you drink blood, you're going to hell. That's not what he says. So there's a way that you can live that would be offensive to other people. I'll give example of this. All throughout the COVID years, Becky and I made trips back to the States, helping the girls with getting into uni and all of that sort of thing. The only route for us to get to the USA during the COVID, COVID years was not through Philippines closed, New Zealand closed, Australia closed. You could not transit through those countries, but you could transit through the Middle East. We transited through Doha, Qatar. That is a very strong Muslim country. I'd never been in such a strong Muslim country in all my life. 
And I'll never forget the very first time I stepped off the airplane in Doha with Becky. We'd been there less than five minutes, and this was the thought that went through my mind. If I lived here and was going to minister to these people, there's a major lifestyle change that I would have to make. You say, but no, wait, we've got freedom in Christ. Yeah, we do. But I'm never allowed to use that freedom to push somebody over. I give up my rights in order to win them. That's the gospel message repeated again and again. So as we walked around, you know what we couldn't find in the food display cases? There was no bacon. There was no pepperoni. There was no... They were very, not kosher, halal. And I thought to myself, I would need to, if I lived in Doha and I wanted to minister to people and bring these Muslims to Christ, which they need the gospel... If I'm going to reach them, I cannot step in front of them and go, hey man, you got to understand, liberty in Christ, let's eat the pig. I can't do that. You realize most likely if I was a missionary in Doha, my wife would probably have to wear a dress all the way down to her ankles and she probably would end up having to have a head covering on. Why? Because we don't want to be offensive within the culture that we're in. This is important, brothers and sisters. And James says it to the Gentile brothers. He goes, guys, you're saved and you've got liberty, but be careful. Your liberty could be offensive to other people. You might remember Paul made this statement. This is Romans 14. He repeated it again in 1 Corinthians 10. If me eating meat causes offense against somebody else, I'd rather be a vegetarian for the rest of my life. This is James. A righteous example. And yet, I'll say it again, you can swing that pendulum, swing it from the one side and swing it over to the other side. Be very careful because that righteous living and the way that you are a good example does not make you right in the eyes of God. You're right in the eyes of God because of the Lord Jesus. He's the one that went to the cross. But your life will be changed. Your life should have some differences in it. So we've seen the author, James, the brother of Jesus, a humble man. He cared about how he lived. And he's writing to an audience that he cares about deeply. And you can see this audience again in verse number 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his audience, these are the people he's writing to, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. He says, greeting, greeting is a kind way of saying, hey there, glad to see you guys. Listen to me as I talk. The audience, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. I submit to you this morning that this is more than just 12 tribes of Jewish people. I'll defend that in just a moment. Remember that on the day of Pentecost, the 120 in the upper room, They step out with the Holy Spirit. Peter steps out and he preaches the gospel. He spoke in one language they heard in tens of languages. It wasn't speaking in tongues, it was hearing in tongues. God took Peter's language, turned it in the air somehow, and they all heard in their languages. And that day, 3,000 people got saved and baptized. You come to the next chapter, another couple thousand get saved. Another chapter, 5,000 get saved. Another chapter, and they came to the Lord in multitudes. The church is growing, exponential growth. Within just a few months, I think it would be safe to say that within just a few months, the church in Jerusalem was well over 25,000 people. Absolutely amazing. Is it any wonder that the words were used in the book of Acts, these men have turned the world upside down? The gospel was spreading like wildfire, 
thousands of believers in Jerusalem. And then you come into Acts chapter 8 and at verse 1, and it says that there was a great persecution that came upon the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad except the apostles. In other words, only the apostles are left in Jerusalem. All of those thousands of believers have now been scattered out to far-reaching places. And here's James with a pastoral heart caring about those people. James, servant of God, servant of our Lord Jesus Christ, to those that are scattered. Your 12 tribes, your Jewish people, because you came from Jerusalem, but you're scattered. I, I can only just imagine if we had something similar happen. If for some strange reason, I'm the only one left here, and all of you have been scattered to many different places, all I have left to do is write to you. And James writes with a pastoral heart. He cares about them. They're out. They need shepherding. And James writes, Brothers, there's a reason for me to be writing. And the topic of the letter is examine your faith. Before I jump down into that, let me, share, let, let me prove to you what I, what I said. These are not just Jewish people, they're believers. See it in chapter 1 and verse 2, he uses the words, my brethren. In chapter 1 and verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. Verse 19, wherefore, my beloved brethren. Chapter 2 and verse 1, my brethren. This continues all throughout the book. In fact, 11 times he says, my brethren. Three times my beloved brethren. This is more than just we're blood-related because we're Jews. This is we're related because we're in Christ. My beloved brethren, he writes, don't err, don't be mistaken. Just because you prayed a prayer doesn't mean that you're right with God. Test your faith. Examine your faith. And that's the topic here. I wonder, as we see this idea of examine your faith and test your faith, I wonder if you've ever noticed a, a, a weird thing that happens in life. When you change scenery, quite often you have an opportunity to change habits. I don't know if you've ever seen that. When you're, when you're in this location, you might act this way, you might have this kind of routine. Maybe it's like for Becky and I, when we're at home, our routine is the same. Get up, make coffee, sit together, read the Word. But we're at a different location. Even making coffee is difficult. Uh, when you're in a hotel room, it's going to be this nasty instant stuff. I need a real plunger. She packs one in the suitcase. <laughs> uh, there, there's, there, when you go to a different location, sometimes you have different habits. Example. Uh, one of my friends who is a, a guy that flies in, not a believer, it's an American guy that does fly in, fly out. He'll be here for a couple of weeks, then he's overseas for a couple of weeks. I was talking to him one day. He's standing there, we're talking, and he's smoking a cigarette. I said something to him about, you know that stuff is going to kill you, man. He said, I know, I know. I'm, I, I wish I could quit, but he said, there's some. And, and then he made this statement, and I thought, wow, that is so amazing. He said this. He said, when I go to the U.S., 
He said, I land in the U.S. I'm with my family. I spend time with my family. He said, when I'm there, I have absolutely no desire to smoke a cigarette. He said, I land here in PNG. He said, I can't walk out of the inter international terminal without looking for where's my cigarettes. And he said, I smoke the whole time I'm here. He said, I get on the plane, I go back to the U.S., and I never even think about smoking a cigarette. That, I think, is a great example of the fact that when you're in one location, you might have certain habits that are really good for your life. And you go to a different location. And I think that's what, what James is addressing here. He said, guys, while you were in Jerusalem, you were around your brothers and sisters in Christ. And things were really good for your spiritual life. But now you're scattered and you might be the only believer all by yourself. And you don't have anybody that's going to be iron sharpening your iron. And there's not anybody around to ask you, hey, how you doing? And so, brothers and sisters, I see this question coming up with that in mind. You've gone to a far distant place. Are you in the faith? And while I'm there, let me just make mention, because a lot of us have these life-changing events. When you go through a life-changing event, check your faith. Examine your faith. See whether or not you're in the faith and let some of these 10 questions that he's going to ask over the next several weeks, let some of these 10 questions help you to examine, am I really in the faith or not? And if you're not, oh brother, sister, come to be close to Christ. This is not a one-off idea either. When I say examine your faith, James is not the only one to say it. It gets said over and over and over throughout the New Testament. Paul said it. Here's in first, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And by the way, Paul says it many times. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Examine yourself. Don't go through life saying, I prayed a prayer. Oh, friend, as your pastor, I beg you, examine your faith. Is there a change in my life? If there's not, examine yourself. John said it. He says it in 1 John chapter 1. In fact, the entire book of 1 John repeats this theme. Here's 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. You, did you hear what John said? He said there are some people who could be saying one thing but doing another thing. If I say that I'm in Christ, but I walk in darkness, I'm lying. I'm lying to you and I'm lying to myself. I'm not in Christ at all. Just because you say you're in Christ doesn't mean that you are in Christ. And so it's possible, it's possible to be a hearer of the Word and not a doer of the Word. It's possible to be a sayer of the Word and not a doer of the Word. There needs to be a change in your life that has a result of being transformed by the gospel. Young people, you'd be familiar with this passage. This is Peter. Peter said it. And Brother Phil hearkened to this passage so many times. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is verse 5 and following. Listen to what he says. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Add it. So in other words, you get saved. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't stop there. Add to that. There should be some changes going on in your life. Take the time to examine yourself. Am I hearing the Word and doing the Word? Or am I only saying I am? Jesus said it. 
Jesus said it in Matthew 7 and verse 19, and he gave a picture. He used an illustration. Every tree that bringeth not, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. So the picture Jesus used was of a tree. And he says, if you're like a tree that doesn't have good fruit, you have one purpose alone. Cut you down, chop you up, your firewood. If you follow that picture through, that's a terrifying picture. But there's a different way that you should be living. Jesus continues on, same passage. This is chapter 7 and verse 21. He says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name? Have we not cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Those are terrifying thoughts. In other words, it's possible to come to church on Sunday. It's possible to lead a life group session. It's possible to stand and preach the Word of God. It's possible to be a part of the orchestra. It's possible to be an usher. It's possible to be a part of the security team. It's it's possible to be volunteering. It's possible to be carrying Bibles and giving them out at high schools. It's possible to be involved in ministry and your heart be far from God, involved in wickedness. And on that day, you know what Jesus will say? I'm sorry, I don't know you. Examine your faith. And James says it. We come into James chapter 1 and look at it in verses 22 to verse 26. This was our scripture reading this morning. Verse 22. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. Don't just be a hearer. Be a doer. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto the man beholding his natural face in a glass. You went and looked in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is vain. You went to church on Sunday for no reason. There should be a change in your life, brothers and sisters. James gives us ten of them. He says there's some questions that you need to be examining in your heart. I won't read them all to you, but I'll give you a couple of them. We'll take 10 weeks to walk through all of them. Here's a couple of those questions. Maybe it'll spur your thinking as we bring this sermon to a a finish. Do you just give up in the middle of temptation? When temptation comes your way, do you just give in to it? Or do you fight like your soul depends on it? How about, do you play favoritism? In the family of God, you come to church and you see that one, oh, I'm one line, I'll be close with that one. Or that one, I've got money, or that one, he can give me a good job, so I'll be with that one. Do you play favoritism in the family of God? How about this one? Do you let your tongue get you into trouble? I think we would be able to park on that one for a long time. 
how easy it is for our tongue, the little member, to cause us to go into some major problems. How about this one? Do you truly humble yourself before the Lord? Or is that something you only do in public? James is very clear in his book. There's some tests that we need to look at ourselves and see, am I really in the faith? Do you mistreat others? It's in chapter 5. And so as we spend the next 10 weeks together in this book, I hope that the Lord Jesus uses this epistle to help us to look at our lives, examine ourselves, take serious stock of our hearts in the coming weeks. Hey, if you're saved, there should be a change in your life. And if you're saved and you find yourself lacking in some of these areas as we go through them, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So maybe we just need to make some checkups and we'll spend the next 10 weeks walking through Test Your Faith. Father, I thank You that You sent Your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And I thank You that You made it so easy for us to be right with You. By faith alone, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a gift that we could never earn. What a gift that we do not deserve, and yet You, as a gracious and good Heavenly Father, have given us the life and the blood of Your Son, the Lord Jesus. I pray that we would not take that lightly, but then instead, because of the gospel doing its work in our lives, we would be transformed. And I pray that we would be an example. I think even as James, the Lord Jesus did not give up on James. Thirty years, he went after him. God, I pray we wouldn't give up on our family members. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to share the gospel. And in the meantime, I pray we would examine ourselves. Are we in the faith or not? And Lord, thank you for this book of James that we'll be able to spend some time in together. I look forward to walking through it with my brothers and sisters. May our lives be transformed because of the practical help that comes out of this book. For it's in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen.